All that's good stuff, especially the uh, you getting to adopt a college student to feed them a good meal once a month. And I just want to let you know that I'm open to you adopting me as well. So <laughs> text me, email me, call me, grab me after the service. Be glad to take you up on that home cooking. I'm looking at Jenna. One of, the, one of the jokes in our marriage is that I eat anything. I've made her a great cook because I eat everything. She is a great cook. Um, look on your sheets real quick. Uh, or on your seats. I say sheets. Look on your seats. Uh, take a moment to read that. We are in our final chapter of Isaiah. We will have a grand finale wrap up next week that I think will encourage us and help to finish the work God has done in us through this book to mark us. Uh, deeply as a church and as individuals as we finish up Isaiah. So we'd love you to participate next week. Stick that in your Bible. Give some thought and prayer to how you will participate uh, with us. And in light of that, turn to the very last chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. 10, 11 months ago, we started in this massive book. And uh, we're going to wrap up with this last chapter today as we talk about what really matters. Now, if you do a small Google search on that question, what really matters, you'll come up with literally thousands of options that the world tells you is important, that matters. And, and honestly, that's one of life's biggest questions, if not the biggest, what really matters. I, I was... Uh, uh, interested this week in an article that I read on ESPN about Aaron Rodgers, the Super Bowl winning all-pro quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And I have nothing against Aaron Rodgers. I just read the article and he says very transparently that after he won the Super Bowl, they're sitting on the team bus, they're passing around the Lombardi trophy, they're all kissing it and touching it. And as he sat there, he thought, is that all? I hope I do more than my life than this. Translated, there's got to be more to life than winning a Super Bowl, making millions of dollars, dating beautiful women, and having all the fame and power a man can have. There's got to be more. It feels like this to many of us sometimes, to the world, internally, this is the thought that goes on. There's got to be more. Once you get to where you thought you'd be happy if I had this. And it feels like that because this world and nothing of this world will answer that question. Ray Ortland clarifies and tells us why. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was perfect. Then we ruined it. We we were deceived into thinking that we'd be better off defining for ourselves what really mattered most. We did not realize we were pulling a lever to make God's perfect creation into our perfect hell. And so here's what Isaiah does this morning. In this last chapter, this finale, this, this crystallizing chapter, he tells us three things that really matter most. I think it will be helpful for us. And he starts with word being a word trembler versus a phony church goer. Uh, ultimately, uh, Dr. John Oswald says that the whole book of Isaiah, if we just step back a minute, 
He defines the whole book or describes the whole book, if you would, in one sentence. And he says this about the book of Isaiah. Ultimately, the whole book of Isaiah is an appeal to abandon the folly of human pride, to embrace God's lordship, and to experience the wonder of life if it's as it was meant to be. Or to experience the wonder of life doing what really matters. When you think about it, there's nothing more contradictory than a prideful Christian. But our natural bent is to put ourselves above God and ultimately above everything else. And every baby that's ever been born has done that, except one, Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, (laughs) he comes And he submits to the Father and he says, your will be done in humility, not my will. He dies on a cross and he bleeds for us and then he says, you follow me. So he in some ways the poster child of what God wants to do in and through his people. Humility. And so here's what Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah does. The book of Isaiah wants to kill the pride in us. And the first six verses of Isaiah 66 actually crystallize that whole thought of pride and killing it. And it starts with this. Read with me. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and he trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one that breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like the one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like the one that blesses an idol. These have chosen their own way, and their soul delights in their abominations. Here's the connection. Therefore, the Lord says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and I will bring their worst fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes, and they chose that in which I did not delight." Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers, here in name only, who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, and here's some sarcasm, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. And then it says the sound of the Lord will come and he will render recompense to his enemies. This passage starts with these very clarifying words, thus says the Lord. He is speaking here and he says, heaven is my throne. It speaks of this vast immensity and infinity of the heavens of God's throne. And notice he doesn't say my throne is in heaven. Now that's true, but here there's this bigger picture, if you would, of all of heaven being where God sits, a picture of his majesty and complete sovereignty over all. And then he speaks of himself. He says, heaven is my footstool. 
He says, the earth is under my complete subjection. So Isaiah starts us off here with making this point to make sure we get God right. Because if we don't get God right, you and I can't be set right. And so our human pride comes out in the next two questions. It shows itself as God responds. He says, what is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The word there is really vacation. If you were in a, a Brit, you would say, my holiday. What is this house you're going to build for me? And where can I go on vacation? He's speaking here of rebuilding the temple that's been destroyed. So we asked the question, was it wrong to rebuild the temple? No. No, it wasn't. God had put it on David's heart and Solomon actually finished the project. But the Lord is fully aware of the capacity of humans to misuse a building in his worship. To focus on the building itself instead of the God that lives in the temple. To, or he actually doesn't live in the temple, he lives everywhere, but you get the point. To corrupt what is good with impure worship of him, Isaiah and the Lord knew that more was needed than just a physical restoration. What was needed was a restoration of the heart. God was not against the temple, but he was against religious posturing. He was against playing church. He once was against making the infinite, finite, the eternal, temporal, and the creator, a creature. He continues in verse 2. So you want to build me a house with stuff I made? So you can control me? So I'll be indebted to you? So you can please me? So I have to do what you demand me to do? God sort of saying in verse 2, I'm having a hard time seeing it. It's not really appeasing to me. You know, it's like, doesn't do much for me for you to make a, a house for me when I made all the things you're making the house for and I actually made you too. It is nearly an incurable truth for mankind to think that we can manipulate God and have him be indebted to us. In humility, we come to God and we ask and we plead and we weep and yes, pray. I, I, look, we just talked about prayer two weeks ago as I talked. But ultimately, we need to understand that he determines how he responds. And if he responds different to our prayers than we think he should, it's because he knows a lot more about the situation, about us and what's going on than we do. Someone put it this way. It says, God does not need us to give him suggestions of how to run his universe. It is that God that Paul spoke of in Acts chapter 17. He goes to the city of Athens. He speaks to the people of Athens. And there's a statue of an unknown God. And he said, let me describe who he said this God is. Same one that Isaiah is, is talking about. The God who made the world and everything in it. This master of the sky and land doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. And then at the last part of verse 2, 
we ask this question, so if building God a house is not going to call him, it's not going to call him or make him pay attention to us, then what would? He says, it surely won't be bribing me by giving me stuff that I already gave you in the first place. You know, it's like your kid giving you a toy that you gave him. You're like, thanks. But he says, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will esteem. This is the one that I will have favor on. And he puts it out very plainly for us. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and one who trembles at my word. Can you imagine, I hope you can, that Jesus really wants our obedience more than he wants our sacrifices? He talks about the humble and contrite. Let's clarify that. It is one who knows he needs help and has nothing to offer in return. He does not put himself in the position of the giver, but he actually puts himself in the position of the receiver. God doesn't need you and I to contribute to his glory. He just is. He just is glorious. And he's going to be glorious where we're participating or not. Augustine, after coming to faith in Christ, was asked by some of his fellow philosophers, what is the most three most important things in being a Christ follower? And his answer, humility, humility, humility. Tim Keller puts it this way, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In some ways, it's a little embarrassing <laughs> that God has to tell me and you over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible, you're not the point. Life doesn't start with you. Life doesn't terminate with you. I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, I have to wake up every morning and reposition and reorient me to me. It's not about me. To fight against the pride in my own life and heart. <sighs> to wage war against myself. And here's what Isaiah is trying to tell us. What the Lord is trying to tell us. The primary, you need to get this, the primary evidence for me and you that we have a humble and contrite heart is that we tremble at his word. That's the evidence. We esteem it. We revere it. We love it. We pay attention to it. We recognize its divine majesty, majesty and authority over our life. And when we read the word of God, we have these Isaiah response to it. This Isaiah 6 response that says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Many a person has been informed by the word of God, but not transformed by it. Think Judas. Three years with Jesus. He knew the Bible. He had the best Bible teacher in the history of the world. He had the one who wrote the book. And here's why. They stand over God's word as a judge. They judge what they like 
They judge what they dislike. When they read something, you might have heard them say, you might have heard yourself say, you might have heard your family member say, your friend say, I know the Bible says so and so, but I think. When that happens, if you're a trembler of his word, alarms go off, red flags raise up, and you know God is saying, I didn't ask you to think. I asked you to believe, to walk by faith that my word is better for you than your own thoughts and your own word. The opposite of that is submitting ourselves under his word. To be wounded by it. To let the sword pierce us. Let the pus of our own pride out. To bring us low so Jesus will be lifted high. So I say to us this morning, as Fellowship Bible Church, if you are a Christ follower, the Bible cannot have a marginal place in your life. Can't do it. It is your life. Being a word trembler will guard you from deception that is to come or the deception that is already there. Here's how John Piper puts it. You might think, what's the big deal if, you don't read, if I don't read my Bible and pray today? The big deal is this. You are missing out on hearing God himself speak to you. You're missing out on being exposed to the glorious treasure of Scripture. And you're missing out upon the privilege of God pressing down, I love how he puts this, the mortar of his word into your life in the midst of the force of your current circumstances and emotions. You are missing out on the supernatural compounding effect of Bible reading in your own growth and sanctification. Now, in the banking world, in the money world, we love compounding interest, do we not? That's what he's saying about this word. <laughs> he's saying, you get up and your day is busy. Welcome to reality. But here's what you do. You look at your schedule. And you know, I need to hear from God today because the core of my being is self-trust, self-will. And as you do look at your schedule, you found that little slice right there. That is when I can meet with God. I know what my wife does. She will do it on her lunch break, sitting in her car with the air conditioning running, and she will have that word out. Now, she's embarrassed that I would even tell you that. But she, when I see her, I'm telling you, it's motivating for me. She's going to find the time to open that word and hear from God. <clears throat> and we get this compounding effect. This little by little by little by little. And we look back over the years. And we know God. And we know his word. And it's in us. And it's working. I'm amazed at how God's economy is so different. Those who know they don't deserve to be recognized are the very ones that God actually recognizes. <laughs> 
Think of Jesus, Last Supper. He overhears his disciples talking about being great in the kingdom of God. And he said, good. You want to be great? I'm with you. It's a good desire to be great. Let me tell you how to do it. Take your shoes off. Take your, well, I guess they didn't have socks. Stick your feet up here. Let me wash your feet. Be competitive foot washers. But I'm going to wash your feet, but I'm going to do something better. I'm going to bleed for you. And I'm going to go to the cross. And once again, I'm going to be your poster child for walking in humility. You follow me. And then verse 3, Isaiah addresses phony churchgoers. The best word I could come up with. Uh, some of them probably weren't presentable in public. You know what I mean? They are not humble. They do not tremble at his word. And here's what he does in verse 3. He gives a contrast, if you would. I don't want to go into all the dog breaking their neck stuff. But he contrasts four God-ordained sacrifices with pagan rituals. And here's the point he's making. On the outside, you look like you're doing all the right things. But your heart is far from me. Because you show up in church... Full of pride. And instead of engaging the word and being a word trembler, you're actually evaluating the service and the teacher. It still becomes about you. And then he says, these people have chosen their own way and they love it. A person who does this asks these kind of questions. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? If it was wrong, would I not be convicted? See, the problem is they're not asking the right questions. The right questions would be, is my heart so hard and twisted that right feels wrong and wrong feels right? Is the problem with me instead of God's word? The answer is yes. <laughs> Cultural Christians... Pursue the God they want instead of the God who is. Now, I grew up absolutely surrounded by this duplicity. I was just talking to Jenna a week or so ago about the shocking, like it's shocking to me now at 54, that I grew up in this church environment Every Sunday where the leaders of the church, deacons, not elders like we have, but deacons would meet on a Friday afternoon at the little gas station on the corner and begin drinking bourbon at 4.30 and see all these leaders in town on Saturday night doing all kind of crazy things and then show up on church on Sunday morning dressed to a T, suits, ties, nodding off in church, standing and reading their hymnals and walk out and live hellaciously Week after week after week after week. And that was normal. To be released from that, it's a miracle. God says, if you choose this, verse 4, then I'll choose to let them realize their worst fears. To let them experience the darkness of their own sin. And just thinking back to my childhood, all those deacons experienced the darkness of their own sins. 
They lost their families. They lost their money. They lost their reputations. They lost their character. And at the end of the day, every one of them wasted their lives. And God says, I'm going to let them experience the darkness of their sin because I tried. <laughs> I tried my best to tell them, to speak to them, to warn them. But no one answered. I called them. But they didn't listen. They brushed me off. They chose to hate what I love and love what I hate. One of the marks of a growing Christ follower is you begin to internalize. Your affections begin to line up with what God loves and what God hates versus being contradictory to them. And then verses 5 through 6 says these cultural Christian brothers, in name only, as I said, they actually taunt and mock those who, who are word tremblers. If you're a word trembler, it doesn't mean you don't sin, but it means you're authentic about your sin. You admit your sin. You're fighting your sin. You have tears of repentance. You have a heart to obey. Your security is in Christ. You're bold for Jesus because you understand the kindness he's had to you. And when they see that, it grates on them. They will taunt you and mock you. I remember I was 20 years old. <laughs> been a Christian nearly a year. I went to work out uh, one afternoon, getting ready for football season at our high school gym. I was home over the summer. And this guy comes in named Jimmy Baggett. Jimmy and I had nothing in common in high school. We didn't hang out. I had a shaved head, much like I do now. I had ha actually hair to shave then. And, uh, and he said, hey man, I heard you were in some kind of religious cult. I shaved head, yeah, you know. And uh, I said, no, man, I said, I, I gave my life to Christ. And so he came to my house. I invited him to my house after the workout. Mom made dinner, and we sat on the front porch of the swing, and I shared the four laws with him, the gospel. And Jimmy trusts Christ. Jimmy was my biggest supporter at $500 a month for 20 years when we raised support. The next day, his dad confronted me at the high school. And they went to a church in town, a church that did not tremble at his word. And his dad confronted me with such anger and mocking and taunting. Who are you to say my kid is not going to heaven? I think I graded on him just a tad. I'm reminded of George McDonald. George McDonald. A hundred years before C.S. Lewis came on board, matter of fact, you ought to Google George McDonald, the author, he has over 50 books out there, some of the finest Christian reading you'll read. Uh, my wife, I think, has read every one of those books some numerous times. But C.S. Lewis refers back to George McDonald as the most influential person, his writing, for Lewis coming to faith in Christ. George McDonald takes over a church that did not tremble at his word and he began bringing the word of God because he was a word trembler and they fired him in his late 20s. And so he began to quit preaching and started writing. That's what happens. So we go from being a word trembler to birthing babies and feeding sheep. Sounds like gone with the wind at first, doesn't it? Verse 6, 
Verse 6 is the hinge verse of this chapter. And here's what's happening. It turns from the tensions of the true and false worship to the final acts of God that will bring salvation history to its victorious conclusion. One writer put verse 6 this way. History begins to give way to eternity. There's this turning that happens as Isaiah wraps up this book. We know in verse 6, we read it, judgment begins with the house of God. That's where it starts first as God weeds out the difference between true Christ followers and those who are just cultural or phony fakes. We think of Jesus coming on the scene with his preaching. For the most part, Jesus' teaching and preaching was an 11th hour warning and appeal to Israel for them to repent, but it instead it incited riots and they ended up killing him. Israel, the Jews, rejected Jesus' teaching that he was the promised Messiah. So the rest of this chapter, as Isaiah takes this turn at verse 6, is the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We've seen throughout the whole book of Isaiah that God's judgment on them, sending them to ex exile, has again weeded out, if you would, those who really know God and those who don't, right? So that judgment brought this fateful remnant of believers. And in the final days, Jerusalem or Zion, synonyms there, will give birth again to a whole new people of God. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord, shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God. So we know in Genesis 3.16, because of sin, God promised that childbearing and childbirthing would be very painful. And all the women said, God keeps his promises, right? No doubt. Verse 7 says, this is a different kind of birth. This is an unusual birth. This birth is sudden, unexpected, no labor, no contractions, no pain. Raise your hand if you want one of those, right? Verse 8 says, who's ever heard of this? Who's ever seen this? Answer, no one. He's speaking here of a country, of a nation. They take time to develop, but not this one. This indicates this is a supernatural work of God happening here. Verse 9, the birth of his church. Will I promise something and not do it? Will I start something and not finish it? God is saying, I am faithful. Remember in Genesis 12, I made a huge promise. I said, through Abraham, I will what? I would make a great nation. With so many people, they would, you could not count them. They would be as numerous as grains of sand in the desert. And I will bring my children to full term. I will do what I said I would do. 
One of the great encouragements, if we know Christ, that we'll spend eternity with him in heaven, is that he will do what he says he will do. So here a nation is being born. Where do those children come from? They come from the Messiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. The children in this nation is brought forth by the labor and the pain of the suffering servant. This is the New Testament church being born. We go back to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We got 120 of the faithful remnant. And on this day, we have the Gentiles being grafted in and a regathering of the Jews. Acts 2.5 tells us there were Jews present at Pentecost from every nation on the earth. And here we have the birth of the church consisting of Jews and Gentiles birthed in a day. And that's what he speaks of here in 7 through 9. And then verse 10 and 12. I don't have time to read it, but it's now that the New Testament church has been birthed, it speaks of the church. Let me go ahead and read it. I need to read it. Rejoice with Jerusalem, the church, and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. So now that the church is birthed, Isaiah speaks of what is mine in your attitude to be Toward the church. He tells us very clearly. Toward the people of God. We rejoice over her. And we. Those who love her. And we mourn over her. With broken hearts. When she does not do. What God has called her to do. One writer talked about how it is our prayers. That go up to God. To pray for her. And to weep over her. When she is broken. We are the bride of Christ. And he loves his bride. And we find great joy in our husband. We are family and our future is secure in a new heaven and a new earth. And then 11 through 14, which I will not read, it talks about, it gives this picture, if you would, of a mother nourishing and satisfying and bringing contentment to a newborn child that only a mother can do through her feeding of that child. It says to us that we are to find delightment and contentment and satisfaction from the church. That we are to draw nourishment from her. It is the place, no matter where we live in the South, and people say, I do church at home, and we're two or three together in my name, there I am also, right? No, 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 no. The people of God here. The church and a church structure has marks in the scripture that define it from a church and a Bible study. They're two different things. But we are to find our nourishment in the church. It's a place where we're fed, where we're built up, where we're equipped in godliness, where we make disciples. It's one of the reasons that we actually are reading that book in our community groups together, Transformational Discipleship. 
Because you and I as Christ followers, we're to be making disciples. We live in community. We hear the word of God. We practice the ordinances of God to remind us of God's shed blood on our behalf, his kindness to us. We give, as Monty spoke about, we serve. So it is a challenge. Here in Isaiah, it is a challenge to the leaders of the church to take seriously her job to feed God's sheep. To not poison them with false doctrines and to not entertain them. That's not the job of the church. So it's this challenge to leaders. But there's also this challenge, if you would, to church members. You. To, as I said, not sit back with your arms folded, not literally, but inside, to evaluate the service, but to, to literally grow and change and listen and to work and work through hurts and to forgive and to show up and live in community and engage the word and worship. That's your challenge. And God says at the end of verse 14, He'll extend her peace like a river. And he says, summarizing, I am on the side of my church. That's good news for us. So what really matters? It matters first and foremost that we're word tremblers. It matters that we're about the business of birthing babies and feeding sheep. Yes. And lastly, that we're part of the missional harvest Versus a cemetery grave. In verses 15 through 24, I really want you to read those on your own. They're fairly easy to understand once I unpack it a little bit. But in 15 through 17, that judgment that began with the house of God in verse 6 now pivots to the final judgment to come. The whole world is put on notice, the very familiar picture here in verse 15 where Jesus rides down in his fiery flame shooting war chariot destroying his world of filthy idols and pseudo salvations Paul paints this very similar picture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 he says when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flame and fire inflicting vengeance of those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day, as we sang about, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who believe. We will marvel at that. He did it. He said it. It's here. All prideful self-trust is gone. See, when you hear a man or woman use these words, I will never do such and such. I will always do such and such. You immediately know there is self-trust and self-will and pride reeking out of every orifice that God gave him. That stuff will be gone. When he returns, he will destroy it in those who embrace it. False worship, gone. False gospels, gone. And then verse 24 is really a picture of a cemetery. He says, you'll be able to walk out and see all the dead bodies. 
It's not, look, I'm not glorying in that. I'm just defining what it is. Eternal death. I love how one writer said, Hell is for those who think they are too good to be helped by God in Christ. Hell receives those who imagine themselves good. Remember Aaron Rodgers? I like Aaron Rodgers. I actually felt sad for him reading this. Because as the whole article, y'all check it out on ESPN, a very long article talked about, he was raised in a church just like ours. Non-denominational, Bible-teaching, word-trembling church by parents who were word-tremblers. And he couldn't get over. What about, what happens to people who have never heard? So instead of going to the text, which answers that over and over and over again, he thought, he felt something's not right. I know the Bible says that, but I think, so who does he go to? He goes to a guy named Rob Bell. Just Google Rob Bell. Don't read his books though, okay? So you know what I'm talking about. Rob Bell says, you're right, Aaron. God says all this, but that's not really what he meant. People have been interpreting this book wrong for thousands of years. All of Christendom. And Rob and Aaron are riding off on the sunset. Full of human pride. Asking what matters most. There has to be more than this. And they can ride a long time, but they will not find it. Verses 18 through 23, as we wrap up, is beautiful. Please read these on your own. And until the new heaven and new earth arrive, God is sending those, it says, who will survive the judgment. How do they survive the judgment? They have the blood of Christ on them. They survive the judgment because of the shed blood of Christ. And those who do will be the mouthpieces, the hands, the feet to go, it says, where God has not been known. <laughs> they will win the nations to Christ. The Jew and Gentile believers will come together as brothers and sisters. Isaiah predicted it. Jesus started it. Paul did it. And you and I get to do it more. To be a part of this missional harvest where we live, work, and play. So at the end of the day, if I am on my deathbed and my kids around me, Jenna's still pretty, but she is old, okay? <laughs> she about to join me, right? It won't be long. But I got my kids and I got my grandkids there. I want to look at them. <laughs> I want to say, here's what matters most. It starts with fundamentally that you are a word trembler. <laughs> Do not walk in your own strength and your own trust. And then out of that, you become a baby birther and a sheep feeder. And in that, you get to participate in God's missional harvest. What really matters Heck, there's a lot of fun things to do. I know it's not fun being a Tennessee Volunteer football fan. But 
I'm saying there's a lot of fun things to do. But at the end of the day, whatever you're doing, whether you're eating and drinking and playing and whatever it is, that's the core. You're finding a way, how can I infuse these things that matter in all that I do? That's good news. That's purpose, meaning, and it's beautiful. And your life will mean something. And here's the deal. Your life which won't be 50, 60, 70 years. It'll last 500 years, 1,000 years, eternity. You'll be alive when you're still, you'll, be a, you'll still be alive when you're dead, not still dead, right? Take a minute to ask the question this morning, so what? So what? In light of what I've heard this morning, what is something very practical, a next step that I can take? And maybe it's just starting with, I trust myself too much. I need to be in God's word and submit to it with a heart to obey. Maybe it just starts there. Take a minute to ask the question, so what?